Hi, everyone. You're listening to Bushwick Junction on Radio Free Brooklyn. Bushwick Junction is a show hosted by me, Asha Saluja. It's about the crossroads in our lives, which paths we choose when we reach them, and where those choices lead us or don't. We'll talk about the decisions we agonized over and the decisions we didn't even realize we were making until years after we made them. We'll talk about how we decide things, how we weigh our options, or how we tap into our intuitions. And we'll talk about the degree to which our choices matter. Do we have any control over the things that alter our fate? Or do we end up in the same place, no matter which which roads we take? On each show, I have a guest tell me all the big decisions they've ever made in order. We start with birth, fast forward to their first big decision, and map out the road their lives have taken as a series of these inflection points or junctions. Today's very special guest is Sarah Goodyear. Sarah is a journalist, a longtime journalist, a novelist, and a co-host of a very good podcast called The War on Cars. Sarah, hi. Hey, Asha, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for being here with me today. I'm very excited to be here. It's been fun thinking about it ahead of time. I've heard that before. I think this uh, this show's kind of just like a life exercise for some people. Kind of yeah. a hard one. Was it a hard one for you? Um, it's It wasn't hard in part because I actually did a similar exercise with like a career coach, life coach three or four years ago. And so... I had already thought through a lot of these ideas, and also I'm writing a novel that is has autobiographical elements to it um, that goes way back into my past, and so I've been thinking about it uh, from that perspective as well. I'm glad to know that this wasn't completely sprung on you over the course of a week. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the first question on this show, tell me about the circumstances into which you were born. Yeah, so I was born into very fortunate circumstances, um, and uh, I was born, my parents were in college, and I was a mistake, so it's kind of funny that I would say that, but uh, my dad was going to Yale, and my mom was going to Yale Drama School. Um, She was at Smith, but I guess she was doing some coursework at Yale as part of the drama school, and they met there, and Apparently, they liked each other at the time, um, and uh, and she got pregnant, and I was born about three weeks before her 22nd birthday and a few months before my dad's 22nd birthday. So they were both 21. They were, you know, I was born in New Haven Hospital, um, and, uh, you know, I lived with them in a nice little apartment in New Haven. And my grandmother, who was from New Haven, lived just a few blocks away. And so she helped to take care of me. And she was a really important person in my life. And, you know, they they took really good care of me. And and we had everything we needed. And so that's, that's the circumstances I was born into. I would say that it was um, the first few years of my life were really nice. Yeah, and got then, a few years in there. Yeah, and then things got kind of weird after that because they, as soon as then he went to law school at Yale also, and um, when he graduated from Yale Law School, he got a job at a nice firm in New York, and they were supposed to do like the whole thing where 
you know, she was going to be his wife and take good care of him. And we were going to live in the suburbs. We were going to live in Scarsdale. I think they actually bought a house in Scarsdale. And, um, and then they, she decided she didn't want to do that. So, um, they both moved to New York city and they got divorced when I was Man, four. Famous yeah. last words. Then she decided she didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. So that was not my decision. That was not my choice. Was she able to keep going to school? She had stopped going to school after I was born. But when we moved back to New York, she went back to school. She got her degree. You know, so she went on to get graduate degrees, multiple graduate degrees. Yeah. After that, that's what she, I think she realized she didn't want to be a suburban housewife uh, sitting in a house in Scarsdale with a four-year-old. You know, just knowing you, I, I, I think I can begin to understand how that may have rippled through your life. Yeah. Um, so what happened to Tiny Sarah when that happened? Tiny Sarah um, came to New York, which was where she was meant to be. And we moved to Manhattan and we lived on the Upper East Side. And uh, I went to a nursery school for a while. And then I went to, um, after that, starting in kindergarten, I went to a school called Brearley, which is an all-girls school, private school on the Upper East Side. That is, um, you know, has a really, 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 really tough academic program. And um, I'm still friends with the girls that I knew at Brearley then. It, it's a, there's a saying about Brearley that you're Brearley born and Brearley bred. And when you die, you're Brearley dead. And um, <laughs> that's really for real. Because it's like being in the army together or something. It's like so intense and hard and it was a little bit um, abusive then. Uh, so you just felt like you were in the trenches with, with these girls and, and fighting to fighting the teachers, fighting for knowledge or whatever. I don't know. Anyway, so that was very formative. Yeah, I don't know. As far as abusive power structures go, that kind of sounds like a badass one. Like I'm, <laughs> exactly. I'm on board. Yeah. Um, so talk to me about Talk to me about the first big decision you feel like you made. Okay, so the first big decision I made was my mother, who, you know, has a lot of, she's a somewhat mercurial person. Um, she got it into her head when I was in eighth grade, ninth grade, that she wanted to move to Austin, Texas. And I was like, hell no, you know, I am not going to Austin, Texas. Um, was your school uh, like a... It was K through 12. So yeah. like my my path was to stay there through 12th grade. And um, I was like, there's just no way. Meanwhile, my dad had wanted me to go to boarding school at the same place. He went to boarding school, which was Andover. And I had been very rebellious against that idea. I did not want to do it because I didn't want to leave New York. Because to me, New York was everything. Like I was just very identified as a New Yorker. Um, my friends and I just wandered around the city and did crazy stuff all the time. I just didn't want to be anywhere else, but I figured I would rather be at boarding school than in Austin, Texas, which did not have a reputation at the time as being a cool place to be. And also like Texas was just not on my agenda. So I applied to Andover and I got in and that was the first big decision. I went to Andover and then my mother changed up on me, which sometimes happens with her. And she never moved to Texas after all. So now you were stuck at Andover mm. when you wanted to be in the city. Ugh. Yeah. And it was, it was brutal. I hated it. I, I, my first year was miserable. I just, like, I remember this one time when I was, 
I, it was nighttime and it was snowing and and I was just so sad and um, 14 and um, and I walked to, like to this grove of trees and sat there in the dark and smoked a cigarette and just just felt very sorry for myself being so far away from the center of the universe that I love so much. That sounds like such a common 14-year-old yeah. feeling. Yeah. <laughs> Just sad, smoking a cigarette and feeling far away from the center of the universe. I'm almost glad you got to experience that as a 14-year-old instead of just being in the center of the universe the whole time. Yeah. Do you feel yeah. the same way? Yeah, it, it worked out. It worked out okay. And then, so then I immediately made another decision when I came back for 11th. So that was 10th grade. And then I came back for 11th grade and I was like, I am not going to do this for two more years. Forget that. And because I had gone to Brearley, I had a lot of credits and I could I could reclassify as a senior. And I got my guidance counselor to allow me to reclassify as a senior. And my dad was furious. It was something that he felt like he should have been consulted about and he wasn't. So anyway, so I reclassified as a senior and then I graduated after 11th grade. So I was still 16 when I graduated. I turned 17 a few months after I graduated. When you decided to be a senior, what did you have in mind for yourself? What was the game plan? To get the hell out of Andover, Massachusetts as fast as I could. And then I thought I would go to college. And my dad had told me he would pay for college. That was always like part of the, like I say, I was born into very privileged circumstances. He was a lawyer. He had the money to do that. So I just was like, okay, I'll just go to college a year early. But he was so angry at me about doing that, that he said, I don't think you're mature enough to go to college. I refuse to pay for it. And then at the same time, my mother had like a really bad health crisis and, um, and lost our apartment. And um, she uh, kind of had a, you know, she just had to kind of drop out of taking care of herself or anybody for a little while. And, um, and then, so I, so I, there I was, I was 17 years old and I didn't have a way to go to college and I wasn't in high school anymore. I had graduated and I was alone in New York um, and I didn't have a place to live. So that was kind of crazy. But fortunately, um, my best friend's mother said that I could live with them. So that was amazing. And she was an amazing person. And you know, I was very fortunate. And so I just, I, I worked that year. I worked in the theater because I thought I might want to be an actress. And two months of working in the theater convinced me that that was definitely not what I wanted to do. What did you do in the theater? I was an assistant assistant stage manager um, on a few productions. And I had a lot of fun doing it, but I saw what the actors' lives were like. And I was like, no, nah, that does not look good to me. Um, it just looked like a lot of struggle and rejection and waiting around for people to give you a chance to do something. So, um, so yeah, so that, that year was crazy. Um, Sounds like it. Yeah, it was a really crazy year and I had to figure out, and my dad wasn't speaking to me and my mother wasn't able to really be part of my life. And so um, I was 17 years old and I had to figure out how to get to college, like where I wanted to go to college and make the case that I could do it. So, and all this because you put yourself ahead a year. I know. It was kind of, yeah, it was did, weird. When you did that, did you consider that your dad might be angry about it and he was your financial lifeline? Um, I don't remember ever thinking about what he, what he would think. I mean, I thought 
maybe, I guess I thought that I was doing well in school. I was doing really well. I was like the dean's list and everything. I always did really well in school. So, I mean, the whole reason I was able to graduate early was that I was a really amazing student. So I thought that like that was like my way of proving myself to him. And he really cares about academic achievement and intellectual achievement. So I think I probably thought that he would be proud of me on some level. I didn't, ex- I don't think I expected him to react the way that he did. Yeah. So, um, so that was just, I was sad. So you find this, find yourself at this stage of life where you really need to argue your case to get mm-hmm. help to make your next step. Yeah. And tell me what happened then. Well, so my friend that I was living with, she and I had taken a crazy bus ride to California years, uh, I guess that year or some at some point and we had been on the UC Berkeley campus and we had stood in this eucalyptus grove it's the second grove of trees in this story how strange and um and we stood in this eucalyptus grove and we shook hands with each other and said we're going to go to school here and um so that was where I really wanted to go to school so I applied to a couple of other places but really the only place that I cared about getting in was UC Berkeley and I applied I got everything together I took my SATs all by myself I you know, I did all that by, all by myself, and um, I, I didn't get in to UC Berkeley. Wow. So, yeah, that really sucked, and I didn't know what to do, and I was just, like, so pig-headed about it that, um, that I just wrote them a letter. They said there was an, that I could make an appeal, and so I wrote this letter, like, you guys are, you have to let me in. I, this is the only place I want to go to school, and then they did let me in. So... So that was that was another decision that I made was that I really want to go to UC Berkeley. Yeah, let's zoom in there. First of all, I'm flashing back because I remember you saying offhand where you went to college when we met. Sarah and I met on a radio adventure that maybe we'll have time to talk about later on in this interview. Uh, but I'm remembering when you said that. And as soon as you were like, I really wanted to get in, my brain goes, oh, my God, she did get in. That's like so rewarding. I yeah. love that. Yeah, it um, was it was great. So I'm thinking about not every teenager uh, gets faced with rejection in that way and decides like, no, this institution is wrong. I'm right. Do you remember what went into that feeling? Um, I think that that year of my life was was really. Uh, it was really central to the person that I have become since then. Um, I was in desperate straits. I mean, I was, I did a lot of stupid things that year, as you might imagine, from a 17-year-old who was on her own. And, um, and so uh, I think that I saw school as being the thing that would save me. And I was just so fixated on UC Berkeley as being the right place for me that I just I just felt like I was going to do anything. I remember like walking down Fifth Avenue one day um, up near Rockefeller Center and, and just thinking about about writing that letter. I, it must have been the day maybe that I sent it and I was just like, this has to work. Like it, it just had to work. I, I didn't know what else was going to happen because it seemed like, it sort of seemed like anything could happen to me in a bad way and um, and I needed to take, control of the process. Have you ever had another moment in your life like that where you were like, this has to work? Yes, I have. I could, I probably will get to that later. Not so much this has to work, but I have to, I have to, 
um, kind of muscle my way through a really, really tough place. Let's bookmark that theme. Yeah. And we'll talk about it when we get there. So how was Berkeley? It was great. Um, it was really fun. I lived in a co-op uh, called Barrington Hall as part of the University Students Cooperative Association, which is like the oldest cooperative housing association in the United States, uh, um, university affiliated. And, um, and Barrington Hall is like this incredibly notorious place that eventually did get shut down by the city of Berkeley. Um, 300 people living there, uh, all different kinds of people. Like we had people who were ROTC and we had like an Iranian refugee guy and we had but we also had like crazy hippies and drug dealers and um and it was a famous place where where bands would come to play concerts and it was sort of in the punk and post-punk era so you know like x played there and flipper played there and you know like it was and you know all sorts of people played there it was like a stop to play in berkeley and then we would have these things called wine dinners where we'd have themes and dress up and people were always running around naked and it was an extreme there were a lot of drug dealers in the house a lot of drugs and it was a very extreme environment um so that was really fun <laughs> sounds like the berkeley dream like yeah. what people what what we think about when we think about berkeley yeah but i was really academically focused um because i felt like it was like a, a sacred obligation to go to university like it's just this sacred thing to me and i in my education was always very important so I I studied really hard and and I was just a really good student there also. And you'd work really hard for it. You yeah, fought your way in there. What yeah. did you study? What did you take? What did you study? And what did you take with you from those years as we think about your next big life junction? So I ended up um, getting my degree in film theory, which was a part of the comp lit department, and um, and I actually briefly left Berkeley to go to NYU to study film because I thought I wanted to make films and then I hated NYU. So I just came back to Berkeley. That's a whole sideline that's not worth getting into. But, um, but I mostly took that because I started taking uh, classes in which we studied films and I just became fascinated by the process of like dissecting films and seeing how they worked. And then the complete uh, that major just basically allowed me to take whatever I wanted to take. So I took a lot of, I took poetry. I was a poet at the time. And so I took poetry writing classes with Robert Pinsky, who is an amazing poet. He later became poet laureate of the United States. And, um, and then uh, I took Mandarin, I took Russian, I took ancient Greek, I took, um, you know, like all these political science classes and then all these film theory classes and all, all of it somehow managed to count toward my degree. So that was that was what I, you know, liked about that was that I could basically take whatever I wanted to. Sounds like you maxed it all out. Yeah. So what happens after college? So after college, I graduated. I'm a Gen X person and a lot of millennial people don't understand that we also graduated some of us into a really terrible recession. And I graduated into a terrible recession and I couldn't and so I was I had been dating this guy. Um for years uh, and he had gone on to graduate school at UC Santa Cruz and I really wanted to stay in California, stay with him. And, um, and so I was like trying to find a job in the Bay Area and I literally could not find a job except I worked at a cafe and, and you know, that was fine. I was making money, but um, I couldn't find a job. And meanwhile, I was really missing New York once I got out of school because California was just super laid back um, once I got out of school. 
everyone was like, I'd be like, so what are we doing? And I'd be like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> everything's so great. And I'm like, that's not a good answer. <laughs> anyway, so um, so after a year of really struggling and trying to find, like I worked at a law firm as a receptionist for half a day and got fired at lunchtime because I said, yeah, on the phone too much. Um, <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> anyway, so I was like, I don't. I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. I didn't know what the hell I wanted to be. So, um, I was like, I got to go back to New York. And after a year of looking for a job in California, I got back to New York and I found a job. Like the first day I went looking in New York. What was it? Um, well, I I went to an employment agency, which was a thing that was more a thing at that time. And one of the things that they asked was for you to take a typing test. So. Like my mom had always told me, don't learn to type because then you'll only type. That was her generation's advice. So I didn't really type very well. And they were like, this is really lame when they saw my typing test. But then I saw somebody else taking a test that was like identifying figures from current events and history. And I was like, what is that test? Give me that test. And um, they gave me the test. I totally aced it. And it was to be a researcher at... Uh, a photo library for Batman Archive, the UPI Reuters photo library. And cool. um, I got that job that afternoon. That's so fortuitous and crazy. Yeah. yeah. But again, it was like because I was looking and, you know, I saw that that person was taking that test. And instead, it like I felt like very much like clawing at that. Like I've got to get that because I need to make that happen. Let me fast back up real quick to something we may have glossed over did you stay with the guy you were dating we haven't gotten to we were still yeah we tried to make it long distance got it okay so what what is it we haven't gotten to what's big junction number two well this big junction was really big so there i was i was working there i was you know like doing this and that i was going out dancing a lot it was just a fun at my i worked from four to midnight so i get out at midnight and go out after that with my friends and it was great um, but I was getting restless. It was like, what's my real career going to be? And then I met this guy at a bar one night and, um, and I decided to go home with him. So that was a decision that I made. And, uh, I was still dating the guy theoretically. I mean, not just theoretically, we were still together, the guy in California and I, and, um, and so that guy that I met in that bar, uh, was a decision that I made. And um, and it was it turned out to be not such a great decision. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah. So he was from Maine. He was a carpenter uh, and an artist, a very talented artist. Uh, he was very soulful and uh, emotional, and a lot of the things that my other that my boyfriend wasn't. And also, the thing with the boyfriend was like we were just realizing how hard it was going to be and we didn't know when we were ever going to be able to live in the same place again. He was on a track to get a PhD and... And there was no FaceTime. Yeah, I mean, we right. And we sp we would travel to visit each other as much as we could, but I think we just both realized that it wasn't going to work. And so I went back to California one last time and I broke up with him and that was really sad. And then I came back and I basically told this guy, Dave, that I met in the bar that you know, we were together. And um, so he became, he was my boyfriend. Uh, and uh, and he was from Maine. And so 
so that so then we lived together for well we dated and lived together in New York for a couple of years and the relationship had a lot of problems but I kept hoping that it was going to work out he had a lot of problems and I kept thinking that I could fix them huh isn't that funny we love a project yeah right so then like in the early 90s the economy was really cratering and also New York was just like in flames basically um I mean it had been in flames the whole time but it was really like I think the murder rate hit the high in 1992 it was it was bad and then I was working in magazines at that point I got a job at a magazine sort of got started on a journalism career and it was like every magazine was closing down and editors were getting fired right and left and Dave and I had gone up to Maine that summer and we'd seen his friend's house and and she said look you can rent our house plus all the wood you need to heat it for the winter for $300 a month and Dave says, "Oh, you know, come on, let's go up to Maine. I'll take care of you. I'll, I'll. You can write. It's going to be so awesome." And I said yes. And so that was a really huge decision. And then I, to- I said that I would marry him also. Let's let's pause a moment. Yeah. Was there a voice in your head telling you not to do that? Yeah. Yeah. There How were, did there you were, silence it? Um. Sometimes I silenced it with alcohol. Uh, you know, I realize that now. Um, I just silenced it by saying, I'm, I'm really strong and I'm really smart and I'm really focused and dedicated and I can make this work. And, you know, and, and I'm an adventurer and I go off and I do things and this is going to be an adventure and, and I can, I can do this. I can make a life with this person and make him into a more stable person than he acts like now. Like if we do this, then maybe that'll be the thing that makes him, makes him stable because he wasn't stable. Without going into it too much, what were the, what was the flavor of instability? You know, he, he had a temper, um, but also like a lot of, uh, resentment of other people. There was like a lot of sense that he was the victim of the universe. He was always getting fired from things. He never had enough money. He ended up moving in with me when I didn't want him to because he didn't have anywhere else to go. Um, he was always broke. And, you know, he just, I look back on it now and I, you know, I think I'm sure there were mental health issues. I, I tried to get him to go to therapy. He wouldn't do that. Um, so it was just like, so, and I was like, I knew that was bad and wrong, but I was, I, I like this part of my life. I was very lost. It was, a. it's like, I look back on it and it's like really dark. Do you think you were in a place of darkness that invited that sort of darkness in a partner? Or do you feel like there was something else in you that wanted to keep it going? Um, I think that I was a good target for somebody like him. You know, I had low self-esteem. I, uh, I was, you know, didn't have a family that was looking out for me. Um, I was alone. Uh, and, um, and I like taking care of other people. Um, so I think for somebody like him that needed to be taken care of and also just needed someone to think to, to ice, he needed to isolate me from everyone that cared about me in order to sort of 
take control of me. And so I was, I was an easy target. Was it a little also like you got to be the stable one? Yeah. In a, in a way that you didn't feel in your other parts of life? Yeah, maybe I was right. I was responsible. I was, you know, I was in con- like I was the one who was in control, and I was, you know, I, I mean, I've gone over it so many times in my mind trying to figure out all the different psychological parts of it. It's pretty complex, actually, but I did make that decision. So we moved to Maine together, and um, and he never could get any work, and it was like we moved there in October, and by November, by December. It just things seemed like totally desperate, like like we didn't have enough food, and um, the I could barely like we had a car, um, but I like I crashed it once, like almost immediately driving on snow, like I had no idea what I was doing, um, and he couldn't get any work, and so I ended up getting work. <laughs> what was happening in your career then? So you'd started working as a journalist before you left. Yeah, I imagine knowing what you do now that this was something that felt exciting or that you wanted to be doing? Yeah. I mean, it seemed like a natural thing. I I had always been a writer. And so like, it was like, at first I thought I wanted to make documentary films, but then that turned out to be much harder than I thought. And I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll write journalism. So, so I, um, so, you know, I, I, when we went to Maine, I thought that I was going to like sit around and write long articles for the New Yorker. And, Indeed, I did write an article that I sent to the New Yorker, and they sent me like a really long rejection letter that said how great it was, but it was a rejection letter. <laughs> anyway, so I got it. I ended up getting a job at a local newspaper. It, it was it was a freelance gig um, that paid hourly, and um, and I started covering like zoning boards and school boards and um, and stuff like that, uh, which w- ended up being you know really good training uh, as a journalist. And so this is the job that's the lifeline in the very dark place. Once we've almost hit rock bottom, it's like, but you have this gig. Yeah. I mean, actually, rock bottom was still a ways off. Okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I, I, yeah, so I started that gig and I also like waited tables and I did other stuff as well. But that job, because Maine is so small and there's not that many people who do this kind of work, it was like that job led to another job that led to a better job. And, um, you know, eventually I was working in a magazine there as an editor and it was like a real job. Meanwhile, my relationship uh, with my husband, which he was by then, had just become really awful. You know, it was abusive and it was ongoing and it was it was um, more emotional than physical, uh, but it was both. And it was just a nightmare, you know, all the time. But I still felt like, I was like, well, I married him, um, you know, and it's my responsibility to see this through and to figure out how to fix it. Um, And I really look back at that time and I just don't have any idea what I could have been thinking. Like, I know what I was thinking, but I still can't, I can't square that person with the person that I am and that I was and that I was before that and that I was at the time. I'd go to the office. I ended up being the editor of a newspaper. First, before I went to the magazine, I ended up becoming the editor of a newspaper. I was responsible for the whole operation of this newspaper. I was very successful. Like every place I went to work, I got promoted to the top job. Um, and uh, But my personal life was like 
And no one knew about it. Like no one knew about it. Not my friends back in New York, not my friends in Maine, not my coworkers. Nobody knew about it. Does that feel like a decision not to share what was happening to you? Because it's kind of the type of thing that might have forced you out of that situation. It absolutely was a decision to keep it secret. I was very ashamed um, and I still am. I thought a lot about whether I was going to talk about this today. And I think it's important to talk about because I think the stereotype is that this doesn't happen to people like me. Um, and it very much did happen to people like me. <laughs> it happened to me. So I, I do talk about it, like I've talked about it in public before. But um, yeah, it was a decision. It was a decision that my pride in some ways was more important than my well-being. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know that we need to talk about rock bottom where exactly yeah. where it was located when, when in the timeline it was, but um, let's talk about how you muscled your way out of this situation. So at some point uh, we were living in the mid coast area of Maine. And I remember like calling a hotline and being like, okay, like I got to deal with this. And once I called the hotline, I think that sort of flipped one switch of a series of switches that needed to be flipped because the person on the other end was like, uh, yeah, like this is like as bad as, you know, <laughs> this is the real deal, you yeah. know, like, so that was very affirming, but also scary. Um, I'm so curious about, um, I guess I can imagine how it might feel easier to talk to someone about this anonymously. Um, but it's really heartening that a hotline really saved your life or, yeah, no, it turned it definitely turned things around. I I remember I was in my office at this magazine and it was a little tiny room that I could close the door to and uh I did it from work and I remember how relieved I felt after I had done it. Like it felt just for a little while it felt like okay. Um this is the right thing to do. Like I'm I'm going to and right after that I got another job um in Portland, Maine, which is like the biggest city in Maine. And, um, and I went to work there and we moved to Portland. So that was like all sort of part of this push of like, we got out of living in this really rural, remote, isolated area. And then we went to a city and I was working for like this really cool newspaper. And I was suddenly had all these really cool friends there because of my work. And now you're on your turf. Yeah. Yeah. And that made him really angry. So he got sort of more and more out of control there. But then like I gathered strength and eventually, and like, and that was where I decided like, okay, I have to get out of this marriage. I just have to go through the steps. And it was like, it was getting into a place where I felt, I felt like, yeah, like living in a city, it's like, okay, I understand this. I know how to do this. And I'm, and I am in a, place where I'm strong enough to make that decision. And eventually I did, I did end it. Congrats. Yeah. Yeah. It was a big deal. I mean, I knew I had to, and, and part of it was that I knew I wanted to have a kid and I didn't want to have a, I knew I couldn't have a kid with him. So, and so all of that kind of came into focus at the same time. And, um, and actually I worked for a little while on a hotline after it was that, after I got rid of him, um, and and that was really important. I worked in a women's shelter and, um, you know, those places really do good things for people. So Yeah, that's yeah. wonderful, yeah. paying it forward. 
Um, Sorry, that got so dark. Like, no, no you I'm know. I'm so <laughs> humbled that you went there and shared that with yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. And with people, you're so right. It's so important. Yeah. I mean, exactly what you said. It's like this doesn't happen to people who are bright and have good prospects yeah. and have amazing skills and talents and are part of the public facing media. Like, that's all BS. It totally can happen to anyone. It totally can happen to anyone. So, but. Um, because I think I had such a strong foundation with my education and, and, uh, you know, my education, I always think of as like this treasure that nobody can ever take away from me. Like no matter how down and out I've ever been, like I always had that. So, you know, like I just leaned on that and then I, um, I met the woman who is now my wife, um, who's amazing I met her in Portland. So like if I hadn't been in Portland, if I hadn't gone to Maine, I guess, you know, that's like we were talking about like what happens about if you didn't make that decision. So if I hadn't made all the bad decisions that led me to Portland, Maine, I never would have met her. And she and getting together with her was like the best decision. Um, and like once I met her, things just like started going up and um, and then we decided to to leave Portland. We had lived there for a while and, and decided to come back to New York. So that was like the next, like there were a series of decisions where I decided to get together with her and I decided to move back to New York with her. And then we decided to have a kid together. And so like that was like this, those are the decisions that kind of led me to where I am now as you know me. Yeah. Wow. What a, I mean, I don't mean to uh, gloss over your pain, but what a cinematic and beautiful arc. I mean, yeah. from the depths of really kind of the worst situation a woman can find herself in yep. to real happiness and for the two to be somehow interrelated. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I'm curious um, about the relationship between your work and these relationships. You said that once you met your current wife, things just started taking off for you. Did you did you find um, when you were in the bad relationship with your husband that work was a place of refuge for yes, that? Yes, absolutely. And do you think that it fueled your work or do you think more that you missed out on an even more accelerated career? I think it, I think it fueled my work. I mean, at that point, um, you know, I the only way in which I could have had a better career, I guess, is if I had stayed in New York um, during that time. And like, you know, but I'm glad I did what I did. I, you know, I was the editor and publisher of a newspaper in Maine. So like I ended up having like the best job I could have had in Maine. Yeah. Um, and actually I met my wife through work. Right. So, so yeah. So, so, um, so I, I've, I'm really proud of the work I did. And I, I really think that that was a good, path for me. But yes, I definitely, the same way that school had always been a refuge from like my family dysfunction for me, work was a, was a refuge from my marital dysfunction. Yeah. What was the decision like to get married again? <laughs> it was tough, but she really wanted to. Um, she really wanted to get married and like we couldn't get married legally at that point. So I think that softened it a little bit for me. I was like, well, we're getting married, but it's not really 
legal, there was definitely that thing in the back of my head. We had a religious ceremony. Um, Interesting. Yeah. uh, And um, it was really important to her. So I was like, well, if it's that important to her, I'll do it. I don't think I would have made the push for it myself. And then, of course, as things became legal, by then I was like completely in. And and by then we had our son together as well. Are you comfortable, excited about talking about the decision to have a child and what went into that for you? Sure, I, I can talk about that, which is another thing that like, especially when he was younger, um, if you're in a same-sex couple, like people either rudely ask you, sometimes they ask you like really, like rudely and abruptly. Sometimes they like dance around it. Yeah, I'm not going there. I'm, no. more, I'm more culling people oh, as yeah. I enter this stage of life of like, how do you oh, decide to I? be a parent? Well, I think part of it, so with my ex-husband, it was like, it, it was the two things went together. I realized that I couldn't be with him anymore because I couldn't have a kid with him. And the way that that, oh, but at the same time, I realized that I wanted to have a kid and that meant I couldn't be with him anymore. Like it was like somehow I was like 32, 33 at this time. And so it was like, wait a second, I think I want to have a kid because I realize now like I can't do that with him and that means like I got to get rid of him like it was almost like a like a biological feeling like I needed to just reject him and get him away from me so that I could have a baby wow <laughs> so like it was I never really thought much about having a kid you before just that you wanted it and but then it was like suddenly I knew and actually my wife with my who was my girlfriend at the time like at first she didn't want to because she had been raising her kid brother who was 15 years younger than she was and so like her whole 20s had been like raising her kid brother so she was like I don't want to have another kid and I'm like well that's too bad so we actually broke up about that for a little while and then because I was just like sure that I wanted it and um, yeah so I don't know it was just like it just suddenly became something that I knew that I wanted after not knowing that for the whole like like I say until I was about 32 I don't think I knew this feels like a trend of uh, even even though this didn't carry through your whole life, this moment that you're able to have of like, no, I definitely want this and screw everyone who doesn't want this for me. This is happening. Yeah. 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 And so um, and then, you know, my my now wife was like, OK, OK, you know, if, if you want it that much, <laughs> she really wanted to be together. I mean, we were sort of like, we couldn't stay apart from each other. There was just nothing that could keep us apart. Um, lots of things could have kept us apart, but it was inevitable that we would end up together. So, so yeah, so we decided to have a kid and, and it was, and, and I feel like talking about that is important too, because, you know, people are like, well, how did that happen? And, you know, I was the birth mother and we used an anonymous sperm donor um, who might uh, be willing to be known once uh, our son is 18 and which is coming right up actually. Um, so, so yeah. And, and we made that decision really quickly. So what's funny about making decisions and me and her together is that we make decisions really quickly. That's like, awesome. Yeah. Like when it's the two of us who have to decide something together, it it's like, it's just boom. You know, we just like look at the options and then it's done. There's so little, mucking around about it something that's come up over the course of this show is 
if something's not that quick or that easy to discern what should happen, it's it might be the wrong decision. Do you mm. feel that way at all? Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the trick that a lot of people use and that I use frequently, which I'm sure you um, have heard many times, is imagine the opposite. Like, you know, imagine, like for me, it was, you know, imagining not having a kid. And as soon as I imagined that, it was like, I knew I wanted to have one, you know? So, but I guess, what do you mean? Like, if it's a decision you don't have to make? No, I think I mean, if it's a decision that you're waffling on, mm. it's a decision that takes too long. Oh yeah, then you probably shouldn't go that route. Yeah. I, you know, I also like, I often, and I still do this, I often will decide to do things, like usually it'll be a work thing that I take or something, and I decide to do it because I think it's the right thing to do, like on some intellectual level. And meanwhile, my gut is screaming at me, like, don't do this. You huh. And it's final. like I finally sometimes listen to that. I wish I was better at listening to it. Like a lot of the time, and I will, those are decisions that I waffle on. And what I find is like my rational mind is telling me like, oh, there's, you know, it's this amount of money and this amount of prestige and it'll be good for you to do this because then you'll advance to this. Meanwhile, this other part of me is going like, oh God, like I really don't want to do that. And I won't listen to the gut part of me enough. Like I, I get my, I'm very easily seduced by my rational mind. Have you learned how to counter that in yourself? Have you learned how to better tune in and say yes to the gut? Oh, um, I would say yes. Um, Yes, I have, uh, but it's still a struggle. I can't believe how this hour has flown by. <laughs> I, there's like seven things I still want to talk about. I'm going to do a choose your own adventure. There's three okay. directions where okay. you're going to go in and you're going to pick one, two, okay. or three. One, I'm curious what you're interested in work-wise right now, but intellectually in terms of subject matter, I want to know about the cars and the city mm -hmm. and what drew you to that. Yeah. Two, love for radio. Okay. Three, parenthood. Oh, man. That's tough. Um, I I guess, um, wow, that's really interesting. So, like, my rational mind is telling me I should choose the, the work thing, the cars thing, because I want to explain that to people. And then my gut is like, oh, I want to talk about parenthood. But I think that it's more interesting. I think it actually is more interesting to talk about the cars. Okay. Um, so let's talk about that. So yes, uh, my podcast is called The War on Cars, and we launched last September. And it's, um, I don't know, it's it's part of a long path that I followed as a journalist. Um, and one of my co-hosts, uh, Aaron Napperstack, is someone I used to work for at a blog called Streets Blog, which he founded. And that was when I, I had, done some writing about street design and urban design before that, but this was where I really learned how to do that. And um, yeah, so we decided to do this podcast uh, because we want to break out of the bubble of urban planning people and we want to talk to, like everybody uses transportation. It's a critical issue. We're in a climate emergency. Our cities are like groaning under the weight of cars our our human selves are being destroyed by cars 
in so many ways. And so I really just, I'm, it makes me so angry and I want to shout it from the rooftops. And so a podcast seemed like a rooftop to stand on. Yeah. <laughs> um, how does that anger translate into good work for you? So, you know, I just get excited about doing an episode um, or doing, uh, you know, or communicating an idea and doing it in a way that's fun and interesting and not just like, let me tell you about traffic calming. But, you know, like, go outside. I want to be able to, to, what we try to do is to, is to take away people's car blindness. Um, and by car blindness, I mean, you know, cars are such a pervasive part of our culture and our our environment that like we don't see them. So like when City Bike came in, right, there were a lot of people in these historic neighborhoods like Greenwich Village were like, we can't possibly have this, these bright blue bicycles besmirching our historic neighborhood. Meanwhile, the street is end to end with parked cars. Like, do you not see the cars? No, you don't see the cars. You don't see them. They're just these $80,000 pieces of enormous, you know, metal and hardware sitting there um, that people don't see. And they don't understand that, like, it doesn't have to be like that. You don't have to have every moment of your life being suffocated by cars. Like, you actually can be a human being who, who walks around on two feet. Like, that's that's an achievable goal. So, um so anyway, so we want to get people out of their car blindness in fun ways and interesting ways. Love it. Cars are the devil. Well, <laughs> I'm curious. Uh, so we're talking about a, a college student, you, who is interested in film and sort of maybe more artistic forms of expression. And then in Maine, you mentioned covering zoning boards. Yeah. I'm curious about the through line that drew you more to um, just how we live our lives in terms of public structure. I've just always been, I mean, first of all, I needed to make a living. Um, so journalism was a way to do that. But like, I've always been interested in the way that um, growing up in New York, I, you know, I walked around the city all the time and I just have been really, really interested in the way people behave in public space since I was a little kid. I remember that from, from my very earliest time in New York. So, so when you think about the way the public space is structured or, you know, the way that buildings are made or whatever, all of that affects the way that we live and the way that we see each other and the way that we interact with each other and our, and our mental health and our physical health. And like, so I just became really interested in the, in the structures that define the world that we live in. I'm really struck by how the places in your life have formed you. So there's the, there's the trees, there's the groves of trees yeah, that yeah. caught you while you were sad. There's the center of the universe, New York, which fueled a lot of your intellectual interests. There's Berkeley, which probably made you like a chill and interesting person. And then there's Maine, which sort of provided this link between the best and worst yeah. relationships of your life. Yeah, I do think about place as being really central. And then, you know, that's why it comes back to New York. And another thing that that I feel like we talk about on our podcast a lot is the idea that people are fighting for their cities, like that people are fighting for their cities and towns and communities and the places that they live and trying to claim them for the people who live in them. And, and, 
everybody feels that way about their place, you know, to, you know, wherever you live, that's the center of your universe, right? So, so you want to fight for that. And there are people all over the country who are fighting to, to make their places better to live in for human beings. And I really love talking to those people and hearing their passion for their places. Incredible. You're doing incredible work. Thank you for sharing a little bit of it with us. Thank you. Maybe we could do a whole other hour sometime about what it's like to be a parent. Sure. Um, <laughs> and thank you for sharing, you know, plunging the, the real depths of your story on air. I hope that you helped someone today. Uh, okay, we're wrapping up, but I have some things I need to talk about with our listeners. You're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, which is a 501c3 nonprofit mostly fueled by donations. If you want to donate, it's radiofreebrooklyn.org slash donate. I think that's all I have for you. Thank you so much for tuning in. Bye-bye.